This episode of The Vast Majority is brought to you by the International Studies Program at DePaul University. Earn your Master's in International Studies at DePaul, where you'll develop a worldly perspective with a lens on global inequality. This academically rigorous program is grounded in critical theory and uniquely focuses on themes of power and global systems. The DePaul International Studies program is dedicated to building a community of scholars and researchers who demonstrate a commitment to questioning power and politics in a way that bridges theory and practice. To learn more, visit their website at bit.ly slash DePaulINT, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash D-E-P-A-U-L-I-N-T. Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jackman Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. Today's episode is from an event I recently moderated between several Chicago City Council members, who are also members of the Democratic Socialists of America, and the half-dozen DSA New York City City Council candidates. I was happy to host this conversation between DSA City Council members and City Council aspirants in Chicago and New York, respectively, because the two cities are probably the furthest developed in terms of establishing an electoral beachhead for socialists in America. Chicago, of course, has half a dozen City Council members who are members of DSA, several of whom have appeared on this podcast in the past. And New York City has made incredible gains at the state and federal level, of course, with folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bowman in the House, and a slate of New York City DSA members who recently were elected into the state legislature. The election of the half a dozen candidates that New York City DSA has endorsed for the city council would make a really nice addition to that spate of folks who are in elected office. So I hosted a conversation between the two cities. The three city council members from Chicago are Daniel Laspada, who is alderman of the 1st Ward, Jeanette Taylor, who is alderwoman of the 20th Ward, and Byron Sigjo Lopez, who is alderman of the 25th Ward. The New York City City Council candidates are Tiffany Caban, who's running for District 22, Jocelyn Coor, who is running for District 23, Adolfo Abreu, running for District 14, Michael Hollingsworth, who's running for District 35, Brandon West, who's running for District 39, and Alexa Aviles, who's running for District 38. New York has seen uh, an incredible amount of action at uh, the federal and state level. I obviously don't have to uh, remind people of who someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is or what she has uh, done, the political space that she's opened up that's almost comparable to uh, the effect that Bernie Sanders' two campaigns have had on our politics. Um, certainly, uh, her, among many other things, good things that her winning uh, seat in Congress has done, it's opened up a huge amount of uh, left-wing political space in uh, the United States, um, as well as her being joined by Jamal Bowman. And then, of course, we're in the middle of uh, a, uh, we, we, we're, it's, it's still unclear what exactly is going to happen uh, at the state level in New York, where things have really been thrown into turmoil uh, in recent uh, weeks. And people are even talking about uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo possibly resigning. And uh, yet again, this is not solely a, a, a something that's happened as a result of uh, DSA agitation. It's been a broad uh, left effort that has has really pushed uh, put the pressure on Andrew Cuomo. Um, but DSA members who are in uh, the state legislature uh, have played a very important role in making that happen. Uh, and so, in both of these cities, we have this space that is opening up, um, this left wing space that didn't exist even just a couple of years ago. And I don't think we have uh, we haven't we haven't found the sort of the edge of what's what's possible for us to uh, achieve uh, in electoral politics. Ele- electoral politics, of course, as we all know, uh, folks who are uh, members of DSA are aware that's not the only way that we uh, aim to uh, make change in society, but it is a really key way. Uh, and we're going to hear from folks uh, in both Chicago and New York uh, about what they've been able to achieve and what they uh, what the, what their dreams are, what what they are hoping uh, to achieve in the months and years to come. 
So uh, we have quite a few people on this call, uh, both candidates and sitting elected officials. Uh, so um, I'm going to have be a little rude and ask folks uh, to introduce themselves when uh, when it's your turn to talk, because otherwise <laughs> we would spend up like 15 minutes just doing intros. Um, so I'm going to start uh, with Chicago and maybe we can start uh, with Byron Sigjo Lopez, who is the alderman of the 25th Ward in Chicago. Um, Byron, can you just start with uh, sort of laying out uh, what the what what has Chicago's uh, group of uh, socialist aldermen uh, achieved in the two years or so uh, that less than two years uh, that, that you all have been in office? Thank you, uh, Micah, and uh, thank you all of you, brothers and sisters. Great to see uh, a momentum taking place in New York as well. So all our solidarity there. Here in Chicago, again, I think. Uh, um, when uh, some of the establish, establishment Democrats used to mock us uh, about that uh, socialism will never happen in Chicago. And here we are um, with, uh, with a group that is growing. And I think that it's going to continue to grow as we see the failures of the corporate Democrats that are, of course, in charge of a lot of cities. We have a lot of mayoral uh, Democratic leaders who have... Um, who have not been, I think, in the, uh, to, the, to the challenge in a time where we have a deep pandemic. We have seen the socialist uh, elders, uh, or brothers and sisters, I'm glad to, you know, I'm very proud to stand with Janet Taylor, uh, Carlos, Rosanna, um, Daniel. And I think it's being clear uh, in what side are we on? Are we side on the side of the people or we are si- or the side of the private interests that continue to govern the city of Chicago? I think that the, the socialist uh, elders have shown that we can push the envelope, that we can push legislation, uh, that we continue uh, to, to make sure that the city of Chicago, um, in the words of uh, Mariam Kaba, dares to dream a different social imaginary, that we don't let anybody tell us what we, uh, that we are, what we're able to do or not to do. I think there, there, there's a lot of power in organizing uh, we have organized our communities uh, to challenge the narrative about defunding the police. We have challenged the narrative um, that tell us that uh, that uh, we cannot make housing as a, hum- a human right. We have seen a socialist elders in the city of Chicago making the difference and make people believe in government. That is very important that we see right-wing extremists with the help of neoliberals and corporate Democrats dismantling government uh, in a time where we need to build the trust that we need. This pandemic has exposed all these inequities, the atrocities of the capitalist system. And I think it has been the socialist older who have been talking about, you know, the atrocities that was to give $280 million to the Chicago Police Department. We have, when we have the devastation of a pandemic in black and brown neighborhoods, we have challenged the narrative that housing um, uh, is not a human right. We have challenged the narrative, and we have fought alongside the Chicago Teachers Union to fight for the schools our children deserve, and we'll continue to fight for a different social imaginary. I think that we have been in the fights in the trenches, and I think people will start to see what's possible, and that's very important. Great. Thank you, Byron. Incredibly. Not only are our socialist aldermen very good politically, but they keep time really well. This is incredible. Nobody's ever heard of an elected official doing this. It's socialist discipline. I appreciate it. Um, I'd like to hear from uh, alderwoman Jeanette Taylor. Uh, Jeanette, could you speak a little bit about um, your background in organizing uh, specifically around uh, public education uh, in the city and, and as well as uh, displacement in the city of Chicago, uh, gentrification, and how that led you to run for office and then what you have been able to uh, accomplish once you've uh, taken office. Good evening, everybody. I'm Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor. Um, yeah, Black Socialist. That, that's kind of the, the slack I sometimes get you. Black Socialist, I believe in public power. And so for me, um, I was a mother that wanted to see different for my children in school. I realized that the education that I got wasn't what they was getting. And so I joined a community organization, which is the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization. And I became their parent organizer. I became their education organizer. And then I went on a hunger strike in 2015 to save the last open enrollment high school there. And so running for office was not 
anything I wanted to do. Elected officials in Chicago get paid $120,000 a year. We get free dental, we get great health insurance, and we mistreat the people we're supposed to represent. And so why would I want to be that? But then when gentrification hit me and my family personally, well, we had to move from one community to another. And now that community is now um, going to get the Obama Presidential Center, I was like, enough. And so in a race of 21 people, um, nine people who actually made the ballots, um, I was in a runoff and I actually won. And so um, making sure that we bring the people we're paid to represent to the forefront. So I give my community a seat at the table. I got a community development team, so I don't do zoning changes. I don't allow developers to come in. I don't give away liquor license. None of that happens without the community. So nothing moves people who own businesses in our community. So imagine a restaurant in your community selling blunts to cigarettes. That's a no, we don't do that anymore. And so it's holding business owners accountable, but also making opportunity for people who currently live in our community to be able to own the businesses. In our community, we used to own all the institutions and now we own anything. And so during the riots, when they were talking about y'all tearing up our community, we don't own anything, we're not tearing up anything. And so, I've just been, being with the DSA is like home. And so imagine being on a Blackhawk is not fitting in because you're not because um, you're not a corporate Democrat. Um, being on other caucuses and they're just talk. And so I'm with some folks who gonna walk the walk. And so standing up to the powers that be is, is what we do. And so we take that across this country and we work together. We have a change we need to see. Bernie Sanders is, is where it's at. If nobody else says it, I will. Look what we're dealing with with Biden right now. And so I'm great to see that people, we're the leaders we've been waiting on. Don't ever believe it's going to be a Jesse or Al or any of those folks. It's going to be everyday people. Thank you, Alderwoman Taylor. Uh, I believe uh, Daniel Laspada is here, uh, Alderman of the First Ward in Chicago. There's Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Can you talk um, a little bit? Uh, I'd like to hear about what you've done in your ward, but also maybe a bigger picture question about the space that has opened up in the city, in Chicago city politics and the space that's opened up on the Chicago city council because of these, uh, because of the uh, victories that DSA electeds have, have won as well as uh, this broader, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, the, uh, the, the rising amount of power uh, of this new left pole in Chicago city politics that's kind of clustered around the Chicago teachers union. So can you talk about that sea change that has happened in uh, Chicago politics? Hey, thank you, Micah. Um, sometimes it still feels like we're swimming against the tide, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, but I am still like really excited and inspired by what we can do with the wins that happened through the CDSA here in Chicago. I, I think about what Alderman Rosa was dealing with, the real loneliness of a 49 to one vote. And so now we're in a position where with the five of us, you're never going to be alone. You're never going to be that solo voice that's just trying to cry out in the wilderness. And so I'm, I'm glad for that. Solidarity is easier um, with your colleagues at your back. And certainly we're doing some inspiring things in the city right now, particularly Alderman Rosa, Alderman Sigcho Lopez and myself are putting forward some really transformative housing legislation we are literally being able to prohibit and push back the practice of people who deconvert housing in our wards, who turn three flat working class housing into a $1.5 million single family home. We are about to pass the first demolition impact fee ordinance in the city's history, really recognizing that these needless careless demolitions actually have an impact on our housing stock and being able to turn that back into productive housing. Um, it is hard work. I feel like that, that window of opportunity, we are prying it open with a crowbar, but at least we've got five sets of hands on that crowbar. And I think we're opening up the opportunity for some really transformative legislation in the city. Daniel, you mentioned uh, what some of the electeds in Chicago have done around affordable housing. I was going for a walk with a friend the other day in Logan Square in the 35th Ward, where Carlos Rosa is another DSA elected official who he represents. And we were walking by 
this uh, this giant uh, affordable housing development that is right near the heart of Logan Square, which is kind of the heart of uh, uh, gentrification in the city of Chicago. And my friend is not in, in DSA. They were like a lefty person, but you know, didn't know the blow by blow of what's going on. So just assumed that this new huge development uh, was another condo building. And they said, oh my God, another another damn condo building in this neighborhood. And I said, well, you know, that's actually a 100% affordable housing development uh, that was pushed for years by Carlos Rosa, one of the socialist elected officials. And like, they couldn't understand, like 100% affordable? Uh, I was like, yeah, 100% affordable. I was like, but where's the, where's the, I mean, is it really affordable? I was like, yes, it's really affordable. So this is the kind of stuff that uh, there's sort of real wins on the, on the table in terms of uh, some of the most crush, uh, most crucial issues uh, in, in the city, uh, certainly in, in Chicago and certainly in uh, New York, which we're going to get into in a second. Um, I want to go back to uh, Byron before we go over to the uh, New York candidates. Byron, can you talk a little bit about, um, I mean, so we've been talking about things like affordable housing and other issues that uh, the elected officials are fighting for. But I think for me, what sets a, uh, a socialist elected official um, apart from other even progressive elected officials is, is the way that uh, folks see their relationship uh, to social movements, to the working class movement, uh, to to the, the the movement that produced them. I mean, this, certainly the movement that produced you. I mean, you're a longtime uh, organizer and fighter in the city of Chicago. So would you be able to talk a little bit about how your office uh, sees its relationship to a, a, a kind of working class base and a, a base of uh, organized activists? We see our office as, a, as an important uh, space to organize our community. I think that we, we've seen, I know uh, Jeanette mentioned this, that um, any, any decision that goes into our, into our uh, office doesn't go without uh, consulting with the community. Nothing about us um, you know, will be good, right? Nothing about us without us will be in line with what is needed in the community. I think that we have put some democratic uh, places, uh, some democratic processes, so that we can relate in our community. I tell you, uh, a lot of young people in our community, uh, you know, we have ward nights, we have time, open time with our community. And I was, it was really sad to hear that a lot of young people, a lot of people from the community um, have never had the opportunity to talk to the local representative. Uh, I think that was something that was very eye-opening when I first uh, got elected. Now we have uh, committees, we organize a community by issues. We have a housing and zoning committee. We do have an education committee, major people of the community. We have an environmental committee. So we open up our offices. We open it up to government to people. It is key that we understand uh, uh, the, the role that um, a local elected official plays. I think that there is by design, uh, the 1% billionaires and oligarchs and corporations put these barriers between the local officials that become uh, puppets of the system in, ter- in terms of real representation, real representatives. Right now, we are connecting with the community. We're working with, with our, um, with our um, uh, constituents. We're empowering people from our youth representatives to people in our community, working with community groups and working among ourselves. I think oftentimes one, one interesting thing that uh, corporate Democrats used to say is that, well, you don't work well with others, Right. But we seem to be working very well with our communities, though. I think that the, what is fundamental to, to, to differentiate here is that it's very simple. We're either going to be working for the people, working for the movement, or we are going to continue to allow a rubber stamp council represent the corporations that continue to pollute our communities, displace our residents, and, and, and defund our schools and critical spaces. This is a way for us to connect, reconnect with our communities for real representation that ultimately, hopefully, re- re- results in legislation and change. Great. Now, before we uh, turn it over to uh, the New York candidates, uh, another question for you, Alderwoman Taylor. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what it's been like? I mean, you all are this sort of inaugural class of these half a dozen left-wing uh, elected officials on the council. And in Chicago nobody is accustomed to seeing this sort of uh, organized left-wing presence on the council. And uh, I I think probably in the halls of uh, power of city hall, uh, there's a lot of people who are just sort of like, what, they don't know what to do, what to do with you all. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of pushback that you have gotten uh, from the, the city's power brokers and how it is that you all have dealt with that? So basically we're the target. Um, I was sitting in a meeting with the mayor 
and two elder black women who basically sat and told me that the CBA was not going to happen and I could forget about getting some affordable housing in my community. And I was like, well, that sounds great. And of course, now we got the Woodline Housing Ordinance. And so it's hard sitting in a room with 20 black electeds and you're the one saying, don't bring the military to the community. Don't bring armed guards. Don't bring tanks to our community because they're trying to shoot to kill. So it's not easy. If you didn't come in this humble, they will, they will try to unhumble you and unravel you real fast. But the thing about it is because you're wrapped around a good organization and good people, you don't get to take their money. And so just imagine AT&T sending you a check for $1,500 and I send it back to them and say, why don't you fix the internet in my ward? That's the type of power that you have when you got good folks behind you and the people are behind you. So we don't take money from developers. We don't deal with corporate Democrats. There are a lot of things that we just don't deal with. It's, it's what Byron said, it's people. It's about people power and it's about us making sure that the people in our communities are protected. We, we got, for the most part, it's a black and brown coalition. And you don't hear that. You hear black and brown people always fighting. I knew Byron when I was a community organizer when he was one. And so it's not allowing them to set the stage and bring an honesty to the conversation. I won in an election where I had only been in the community for 10 years. And it's because I was honest with the constituents. I'm gonna bring you to the table, you get a seat. Shirley Chisholm said it best than anybody. The rich you pay on earth is service to others. And so if you're not doing a service to the people in the community, you're wasting your time and politics is not for you. And always remember, you are not politicians, we are organizers. Uh, Alderman uh, Laspada, can you just talk about uh, what it has been like uh, specifically working uh, with DSA and what, what it's meant to you to have this relationship to DSA? I think it's so exciting to have a genuine co-governing partner. Um, my hope when I was a leader, when I was doing organizing work in Logan Square, one of the neighborhoods that I represent, was that you can have aldermen who would actually bring you into the process who would like not only take your demands into city hall but who would take you into city hall and so now we have the opportunity to do that work with cdsa particularly working with them on the democratized comed campaign where we're still in the fight for public utility for the city of chicago to have a partner that is not just an outside group, but co-conspirators in the work that we can really bounce ideas off of, strategize with together. It's how we won a robust feasibility study around ComEd. It's how we're on the verge of an actual community advisory council and some other important wins. None of this happens without having a direct, accountable, agitating relationship with the CDSA. And so they are absolutely an invaluable partner in the work that we're doing. Great. Well, thank you to the uh, Chicago aldermen. Uh, I'm going to turn it over now uh, from the already elected to the uh, aspirants in uh, New York. So uh, we have, uh, there's half a dozen people. Uh, I, I don't know if New York was like trying to reach the Chicago number of half a dozen or what, why, why the number happens to be the same, whatever, I'll take it. Uh, we have half a dozen uh, candidates uh, for city council in New York City, uh, Adolfo Abreu, uh, Tiffany Caban, Justine Kaur, Michael Hollingsworth, and Brand Brandon West, and Alexa Aviles. Uh, and I'll let all of them introduce themselves uh, in full. Um, but uh, you all are running on a, uh, a common uh, policy platform. Uh, that's focused uh, on three uh, big priorities, defunding the NYPD, desegregating schools, and uh, democratizing land use and housing. Um, let's start with the question of uh, the police, and maybe I'll uh, begin with uh, Tiffany Caban on this question. Uh, Tiffany Caban, folks are probably familiar with, uh, who ran uh, for Queens DSA, uh, not Queens DSA, Queens <laughs> DA, not that long ago. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, that? What 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 that uh, the campaign to uh, defund the NYPD uh, is, and what it is that you think that you all will be able to accomplish on the New York City City Council uh, on that question. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, it is super dope to be sharing space with the Chicago folks. Appreciate the work that you're doing uh, and, you know, to see it modeled elsewhere um, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I know that 
me and my comrades here, we, we talk about it um, often, so thank you. Uh, and we were also just talking about like, can, can, can the elder woman just be our hype woman for a, a minute here, like each and every day while we're on the campaign trail? <laughs> Appreciate you. Um, but you know, in terms of defunding the, the police, you know, somebody else had mentioned, uh, somebody else had, had mentioned Mariam Kaba at the top of this. And for me, defunding the, the police is, is rooted in abolition, obviously. It's rooted in abolition. It's rooted in dismantling racialized capitalism. It's rooted, rooted in socialism. And it's not just about the police. It's actually more so about everything, everything else. It is about resourcing our communities, making sure that we have the right workers doing the right jobs, treating every single person with care and dignity, uh, and making sure that all of our people have all the things that they need, whether it is housing, healthcare, uh, job opportunities, um, you know, safety, all of those uh, different things. Uh, and I know Brandon will do a, a, a sick job of following up on on this um, because he's certainly a, a numbers guy uh, on the on the budget side. But you know, again, this this is a fight for a, a caring, you know, hopeful future. Brandon, uh, Brandon West, if you could introduce yourself and uh, follow up to uh, what uh, what Tiffany just said about what the the, the vision of uh, how it is that you all are going to go about uh, uh, defunding the the police on the New York City Council. Totally. Uh, thanks again. You know, it's good to get to be with folks. Um, yeah. So like, I so my background is a little. You know, I'm organizer, but I've also had spent several years in City Council. Uh, and city and off at the city hall doing budget work. So I was a budget analyst. So I kind of frame it a little bit around like the book Spook Who Sat by the Door, which is like the FBI agent who like black FBI agent who like then learned all the skills and then destroyed it or tried to destroy the FBI from the inside. Like I, it's kind of doing that work in terms of like trying to actually understand the specifics of what um, this work is and take apart the you know, the structures from within, because that is like a very powerful thing, the lack of access to information in terms of how these systems work. But, you know, actually like today, I just got out of the, um, it was like the hearing for the preliminary budget for the police department started at nine. I got to speak at like at seven o'clock, you know, for my small portion of speaking, responding to that. And, you know, uh, in terms of giving testimony. And I think it's interesting just because we've seen a ridiculous co-opting of this language. You know, we've seen like progressives and liberals essentially morph the like defund the police to moving some funding around, you know, and kind of like, well, this is incrementally better. And like incrementalism is, you know, the death to all of us, you know, and I think that we're seeing, particularly in my race, you know, you know, um, and other races too, people who are adopting some of the language, but none of the specifics, like, what does that mean? You know, is it, does it mean creating an alternative or not? And I think that like, we have to be clear, um, just like, you know, very particular about our language, but also specifically talking about how to do it, which I think is a thing where we, like, we take the ideas and we make it real. And I think that's a skill building that we've all been trying to do because we were at a completely different place now than we were before because of what happened last year. So I think that that is like, really the core of like getting this to the reality that we want. Great, uh, thank you. Um, we can come back to this question. Obviously it's one of the most pressing political questions in the entire country at this point, uh, certainly in both uh, New York and uh, Chicago. But let's talk about another uh, one of the top line items on the uh, New York City DSA uh, agenda for city council candidates, which is on uh, public education. Uh, New York has one of the most segregated school districts uh, in the country. Uh, I wonder if we could hear from uh, Alexa, if you could introduce yourself to everybody and then talk about um, a little bit about why and how the New York City schools are are so segregated and what it is that uh, that you all are hoping to uh, achieve on this front in desegregating the school system. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here. My name is Alexa Viles, coming to you from Brooklyn, New York. Um, I, I step into this um, activism and organizing as a mom. So shout out to, to Alderman Taylor. Um, you know, I um, our, our big fight here, right? How we got here is racialized capitalism, right? Uh, where uh, our system was clearly set up to educate 
a few select individuals um, and has been perpetuated uh, for decades, centuries. Um, and we are here to dismantle that, right? And to um, offer quality education to all children, no matter your zip code, your race, uh, where you come from, what kind of family you're from. And so for what that means in New York City is really um, fighting for full funding, right? Fighting for funding to be moved from the NYPD to the education of our children, um, fighting to, to um, dismantle racialized policies, right? Policies that make sure that these school systems remain segregated, right? And that actually discriminate against poor children, black and brown children across the city. And so for us, what that means is, you know, going whole hog on the whole thing. We know what what keeps us safe. We know what our communities need, right? Um, 30 seconds. So that is everything from, you know, dismantling policies, creating new ways of um, breaking down zoning laws and ensuring integration, bringing black and brown teachers, culturally responsive curriculums, and all that wonderful stuff. So I, I realize I'm down to my time, but thank you so much. Great. And uh, Adolfo, would you mind introducing yourself and uh, speaking to uh, a bit more of the, this question about uh, desegregating New York City schools? Yeah, I mean, all, all the things I agree with, Alexa, I've been organizing uh, since I was 11 years old. The first issue was on education. Um, I went to overcrowded, overcrowded schools um, in the 90s. I was one of the kids in public school 86. I had to be bused to a school in the South Bronx because there's no, uh, there's not a seat for me in my own uh, public school. Um, and there's other young people who shared horror stories of, you know, being in kindergarten, having to be, having to sit on the floor because there's not a seat for them. Uh, so when I think about integration is also making sure that our communities receive proper investments. So we're building uh, more schools uh, in our communities just to ease the overcrowding tensions making sure that our schools are properly funded, especially in school districts like mine that, and in this council district, they're owed more than $10 million, um, you know, from the, from the, our New York state uh, government that has been underfunding our public schools. These are where black and brown young people attend in our neighborhoods. It's not by coincidence. I also think about police-free schools and how we make sure that our schools and our neighborhoods uh, money is directed to make sure that our young people are supported, whether it's on guidance counselors or transformative and restorative justice counselors, or just even nurses or just anything, uh, any professions of care that actually can invest in them and their development. That's another angle that we're talking about integration because these model schools that work uh, don't have police in them or rarely do, right? And they actually have resources that go into the development of, 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 of their young people. So we need to make sure uh, that we're lifting up those models and actually investing in the development of our youth and not policing or shifting policing in school into another name because that's what this current city council is trying to do. They're trying to put the, the NYPD under the purview of, of the Department of Education thinking that's going to solve policing when reality that's not it. Um, and lastly, it's just culturally competent schools, right? Making sure that our young people are seeing themselves in the histories and in just in the education and the knowledge that's being taught in their schools and that their existence is being affirmed, but also that other people get to know, learn who they are. Because when I went to college, I was the first Dominican uh, that some folks ever met. Uh, and that shouldn't have to be the case. Folks should know the entire totality of the student body in New York City. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, and so we want to move to the third uh, policy priority, uh, which is around uh, land use and housing. Obviously, uh, and everybody on this call, no matter where they live, is probably aware of the uh, absolutely insane New York real estate market. And so uh, I'd like to hear uh, from folks uh, who are candidates uh, about uh, what the plan around land use and housing is, which is, uh, you know, not just, uh, I think, the uh, building more affordable housing, but a whole range of questions about uh, democratizing uh, land use. So if we could start with Michael Hollingsworth, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, introducing yourself and talking uh, a bit about uh, what your plans on this issue are. Cool. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for putting on this, this event. Uh, my name is Michael Hollingsworth. I'm actually uh, running in Brooklyn. Um, <clears throat> that's where I was born and raised. Um, for folks who don't know, um, as a member of city council, you have three major areas of influence. So one is the budget, one is legislation, and the third one is issues of land use and rezoning. And for far too long in this city, um, you know, our city council members have outsourced that responsibility, you know, to developers. Um, uh, 
and communities of color, you know, black and brown communities have paid the price for that. Um, I, I live in a historically red line neighborhood that um, for the past 15 uh, years or so has been undergoing the same process that red line communities in Oakland, in Washington, and in Chicago have been facing, which is, you know, the capitalists have now realized that, you know, black and brown neighborhoods are a, a good place they can make money. But in order to do so, they got to move the black and brown bodies out. Um, so that's what that's what got me into housing work about five years about five years ago. Um, and yeah, it's just it's been the work that I've been uh, you know I've been dedicated to doing uh, you know keeping folks in their apartments, stopping luxury development in in poor and working class neighborhoods. Um, and you know so for my for my campaign, I'm definitely putting front and center issues of housing. You know, we uh, we need to, you know, stop the the process of, you know, building strictly for you know for for profit and actually, you know, start to build housing that you know folks can live can afford to live in. You know, poor folks, low income folks. Uh, we have somewhere around sixty thousand unhoused folks just here in New York City alone. Um, yet and still, we continue to build these luxury skyscrapers that stay empty. Um, and yeah, so I just wanna I wanna uh, I wanna obviously change that. And then we also, you know, as a city, we need to actually just start investing in building housing again. One of the problems is that we don't, you know, we've, we've abandoned the space of building strictly to, to private interests and our interests aren't aligned, right? They want to make as much money as possible. Our job should be to house as many people as possible. As possible. And so, uh, you know, those are some of the issues that I'm going to be um, headlining. Um, and I'm glad to have, uh, five awesome candidates, um, you know, along to back me up. Great. Thank you, Michael. Um, I want to turn it over now. So we've gone over the, the sort of three uh, core policy platforms uh, of the uh, the slate that's running. Uh, I wanted to hear from Justine Core. Justine, if you could uh, introduce yourself and uh, feel free to talk about any of those three issues. Uh, but also, I wonder if you could talk about uh, what your specific experience is like uh, running for office uh, as a socialist in a uh, in the easternmost part of Queens, which is uh, more more suburban and, and often seen as more conservative. So, uh, can you talk about uh, what what that experience has been like and what you've been hearing from people as you've been campaigning? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it feels like a like home right here right now beyond the Zoom with all of you. So, you know, we have the luxury of being able to lean on our state electeds who are now charting the path in Albany with us. We have the Chicago aldermen to lean on as well. So I think this is a special opportunity to win that socialist caucus that we desperately need in the city. And I'll say that, you know, one of the most uh, important uh, kind of shifts that we've seen in our district is really around defund that's been happening around here. So I think when we're talking about organizing, mobilizing people around an issue, really thinking about um, shifting the logic pattern for so many people and how we think about defund, right? So for me, as a South Asian Sikh Punjabi candidate, I don't think about uh, police as just one unit. I think of policing as a system, right? That this is about surveillance of Sikhs and Muslims past uh, post 9-11. People have monitored our communities for several years since that time about surveillance and incarceration. It's about a story of the school to prison pipeline and how even um, expulsion and suspension in our schools is part of a, a system of policing here as well. But while we were petitioning actually just two weeks ago to get our name on the ballot and you know, we all of us will get on the ballot and we are gonna cross that finish line, right? We have to have that hope too. We actually came across somebody who identified themselves as a law and order Democrat. And that's a whole other conversation, right? But as we talk to as we talk to this person about, you know, why is it that we have $92 billion within our citywide budget, but $11 billion goes towards our NYPD? Why are they doing and handling traffic enforcement, domestic violence cases, and homeless outreach when there are there is a skilled and trained workforce that is actually trained to mitigate crisis that can actually um, de-escalate situations, right? We should be putting our priorities in a significantly different spot. And that's why, you know, myself, Adolfo, and uh, Brandon have penned an op-ed around what our people's budget priorities needs to be, right, and how we're actually bringing the community together. So in East Queens here, some of us are just starting to have these conversations, but this is what we have to do to push the needle in the right direction so that Northeast Queens isn't left out of the fray. This is where socialism needs to happen, and it's because of how I grew up that I came to socialism. Um, and I'll just wrap up with this, that 
you know, I, I never miss an opportunity to talk about the taxi medallion crisis here in New York City, um, the disenfranchisement and disinvestment of so many of our working immigrant people in the city has been at the behest of private developers, private lenders, brokers, and the real estate uh, apparatus, right? So when we talk to people about systems and being systems-oriented thinkers, this is how we kind of shift our city council into the right direction. Great. Uh, and if you'll permit me, uh, look for a, a long Q&A with Justine and Jacobin uh, coming out very soon, and hopefully with some other folks who are on this uh, call who can speak for longer than two minutes about what it is that they hope to achieve on city council and in their districts. We're uh, incredibly uh, ahead of uh, time here. And so we have some time uh, for additional uh, maybe conversation between the, uh, the two cities. Um, I wonder if uh, any of our Chicago comrades uh, who are still on the call, uh, maybe we can uh, start with uh, Alderwoman Taylor. Uh, if you have any uh, advice you'd like to give these, uh, these aspiring uh, socialist uh, city council members about what you've learned uh, about how they should be campaigning and how they should be governing once they win. So get on the door and be yourself. Tell your story. Your truth is your truth. I was a 19-year-old mother with three kids. I had people tell me, I'm not voting for you because you wasn't married. But that same struggle got me into office. I know what it's like to feed my children and go to bed hungry. And because that's what speaks to my community and the people around, it got me elected. There were more people who were more qualified than me, more educated than me. I went to the city colleges. I graduated from night school. I'm 45, everybody else was all, there was only one other candidate that was older than me. Everybody else was 30 and under. And so if your heart is in this work and you know this is where you want to be, it's worth. I knocked 80% of my own doors, not anybody else. And the 20% that I didn't do was because part of my ward speaks Spanish and I didn't speak Spanish, but I went on the doors with somebody who could. And I'm currently learning Spanish. But I went on the doors and was authentically myself. Don't pretend to talk about something you don't know. Be okay with saying, I don't know. I'll get back to you. And your story is your story. Your struggle makes you who you are. No matter, no matter how many BAs, MAs, any of that you got, your lived experience makes you who you are. And so you take that on that door every day. I'll end with this. I lost my mother during the election. So the, 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 the primary was February. I lost my mother January 26th. I took the day she died off. I took the day to view her body off and I took her service off and I was right back on the doors. Why? Because I could hear her saying, that's what you're supposed to be and do what I told you to do. It was so bad that the person who I was beating, who was the committee man in my race, said that I had called his grandmother and threatened her on the day that I'm going to the funeral home to pick up my mother's ashes. So that's what I was dealing with. So if I could do it, you could do it. Don't let anything stop you. If we are supposed to be in these spaces, we are the leaders we've been waiting on. So go forward, go ahead. Don't look at the numbers and stay off social media as much as possible because it will have you thinking crazy. I had a campaign manager who took me off all of it and I was forever grateful for it. Oh, thank you, Alderman Taylor. Also, could we, before you, before you turn your camera off, could we see that shirt you got on? Oh, you want to see my shirt? Yeah, that's a, uh... I was waiting for some. So I got a DSA shirt on that says Andre Byron, Carlos Daniel, and Rosano. So we are all the DSA alders, and then the DSA uh, Rose is on the back, and it says Chicago DSA. Beautiful. Of course. Wow. I got to rip where we come from. Hey, look, I'm proud to have DSA behind me. My uh, my deputy director was a sister named Robert Peterson, who is, is DSA. She's I think Robin's the co-chair. And yep, so... I learned from her. She learned from me. She's the person who was like, you should join DSA. And I haven't regretted it one day because every time I turn around, DSA saves the day. And so I'm DSA all day long. And I don't apologize for being a Black socialist. Not at all. Thank you for that. And, you know, in addition to everything she just said, hopefully New York, you got to be able to create a shirt like that, you know, with the names of all of you, like all six of you. Everybody, that's going to be a hot commodity uh, if you can get one of those. Uh, can we um, turn uh, one thing I forgot to ask earlier, uh, another Chicago question before we go back to the New York folks uh, is to uh, Byron. Uh, I wonder if you could speak uh, a little bit about what it is that uh, the, the kind of uh, environmental fights that have been going on uh, in the city, because those have been really uh, uh, crucial, especially right this moment in the city of Chicago. Uh, and I think um, 
you know, your ward, but also on the, the southeast side of the city. So um, could you talk a little bit about uh, those fights and uh, what the uh, DSA electeds have done in those fights? No, definitely. And I think this issue of the environmental justice is critical. Uh, we have seen, you know, here in, in, in Chicago, uh, the devastation in black and brown communities uh, where profit is over people uh, every single day. Uh, we, we've seen the effects in communities like Pilsen that I represent. Uh, we most recently saw the, what happened in, in, south, in southeast, uh, the southeast side, uh, where uh, unfortunately people had to uh, uh, start a hunger strike just to make sure that they heard. In something that should be given in a pandemic and any other time, it is incredible that we, uh, that we don't understand at this point the importance uh, of um, greener technology, greener policies, the Green New Deal, uh, the importance of making sure that we have a sustainable, uh, sustainable policies in our communities. Environmental racism, I think here in the city of Chicago, um, has affected uh, thousands of people. You know, av the average in some of the, com in the com all communities, black and brown communities, the average asthma rates are three times the average. We are in, in the top percentiles for hazardous materials, for diesel emissions, for air pollution, and then we have the and, and then we have had the audacity of a developer here in Chicago to relocate a facility, a metal shredder, from a Northside uh, affluent community to a poor, uh, mainly. Latinx and, and black community in the middle of a pandemic. Now there's three federal investigations and a demand to uh, to stop the, the metal shredder for more community effects in communities that are already suffering from environmental racism. That's why I joined the hunger strike. That's what we continue to fight. We gotta make sure that we connect. Uh, Fred Hampton used to say this, the international proletarian revolution. We have to connect our struggles. In, in, in New York right now, you have an attorney, Mr. Stephen Dossiger, who is being attack and, and retaliated by Chevron only because he won a massive, massive uh, lawsuit to make sure that Chevron pays for the damage done in the Ecuadorian Amazon. 600 days in, uh, in home detention. That's what got him. And the use of Chevron of the courts. I hope that our brothers and sisters in New York can pay attention to how corporations put profit over people and we can start demanding environmental justice and the Green New Deal locally as well. I wanted to ask uh, Alexa about the environmental issues uh, in your own uh, district and, and, and what it is that you hope to accomplish on them. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, our district is a uh, low-income immigrant working class community. So the fact that we are home to multiple um, environmental polluting f infrastructure is not surprising, right? Um, and so, you know, our fight is both mitigating right what is currently here and moving facilities out and stopping uh, the ongoing uh, siting of awful polluting facilities in our community, but also um, transitioning. We have a working waterfront uh, that was an in industrial manufacturing uh, that is in under constant pressure of development. And of course, luxury um, developers want to put hotels and all kind of fancy stuff on our working waterfront. Uh, that was uh, that employs so many of our community members, but we want this waterfront to be preserved and to be used to manufacture clean energy. We want to just transition for our community. Um, and so that's one of the things that we are fighting for on our working waterfront to maintain it, to make sure that a just transition can happen, that we can get jobs for our community, working class jobs, and that they're clean jobs, um, while also shutting down as much of the polluting infrastructure and moving it out into other communities um, as possible. And a big fight also is decommissioning picker plants, where, of course, um, horribly polluting uh, infrastructure that was all located in low-income communities like ours, um, in Queens, in, in the South Bronx. Um, and so it's taking those infrastructures offline and investing in us and investing our health and our right to breathe. I wonder if I could uh, shift the conversation to something that, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm in Chicago. Um, I haven't been around these attacks. I know they happen a lot in New York. I've heard crazy stories uh, about attacks on uh, socialists of color uh, or in socialist organizations as 
all kinds of bizarre things that people are saying in New York uh, about socialists of color. I wonder if anybody uh, could uh, speak to that. Maybe Michael, if you wouldn't mind uh, speaking to how you, you know, for, for those on the call who are not from New York, maybe explain what the attacks have looked like so far and how uh, you and well as anybody else who wants to respond uh, would, would respond to these uh, attacks that are being levied uh, against uh, New York City DSA and against socialists of color. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, I do, I do identify as a black socialist. Um, and so one of the, the common attack, um, the area that I'm running in and that I live in, um, it's still majority, um, black, either a black American, black or West Indian. Um, but it, you know, it has been changing. Um, the demographics have been changing. Um, one of the common, um, in my particular race, one of the common, attacks from, uh, you know, the establishment Democrats, uh, particularly the Negro liberal, yes, I did say Negro liberal um, electeds, is, um, you know, they like to use, you know, they're the ones who are, who are responsible for gentrifying our neighborhoods, right? Gentrifying, you know, when you talk about gentrifying, gentrifying isn't, you know, white people moving into your neighborhood, and, and that's gentrification. Gentrification is a set of decisions um, that are made. Um, and in, in my particular case, it's a you know a set of decisions that were made by, you know, the democratic um, elected Negro liberal class um, who have uh, you know facilitated a lot of the developer-driven rezonings that have pushed black and brown folks out of their neighborhoods all across the city. And so, you know, one common attack that they use, you know, against um, me and my campaign is that I am I am backed by um, a bunch of people, uh, young white people who just want to see um, black political power collapse, and so that's a that's a common attack. It's a false one, you know. Um, black people are always going to have power, you know. The black Negro liberal elected class, their their power is in, is in, is in trouble, um, not us, not regular black folks. Um, so that's a that's their number one um, bullet they have in their gun, but it's um, you know it's a weak one that can be rebutted by somebody like me who's lived there my entire life. I can just jump in real quick on it. Sure. I just have to like underline like this is not just like a strategy; it's like the strategy that's really coming out from the establishment, mainly because the black and brown leadership, mostly black you know, political establishment in central Brooklyn is really aligned with the county structure. And we are like literally up in their grill in terms of the district. Like there's direct overlap in terms of where we've built. So they're really threatened by us. So, and that connects to not just the like Brooklyn political machine, but also the like the federal folks. And you can kind of guess who is like throwing a lot of weight right now at the like federal level, who's really high on the like, Democratic Party leadership that is also behind trying to push back on this literally the exact geography of sort of where we've had most inroads in like electoral work, you know? So this is like ground zero for this. And I think that it's a very, because of long history of like bad racialized, you know, um, you know, political, you know, issues within our country, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a useful strategy for a lot of folks who aren't like cued into all the details. So it's something that they're going to keep using to us. But like the response is doing the work, which we are all been doing and trying to do. And I think that that is like kind of been the best way that we've been responding to this by actually showing what we believe in. So I think we've been we've been pushing it back, but I think it is because you know we've been doing work that they haven't been doing for an incredibly long time. Hey, can I quickly add a, just like literally four oh, yeah. less than that? This is also pivotal, right? Important, right, for a lot of us because we have been doing organizing work for years, right? So when, when folks are throwing this attack, they're erasing the people in our neighborhoods that have been at the forefront of this battle, right? A lot of us are here from organized communities or in unorganized communities, but like building power with our folks here, people who want to make sure that their housing is safe and secure and affordable where they can own it, where their schools don't have to be falling apart, where their healthcare infrastructure doesn't have to be falling apart. And when those attacks are thrown, right, they're erasing the people who live in this community, who've seen the work, who've been part of the work, so if anyone, any of our opponents or if anyone in power tries to do that, they're disrespecting people that they quote unquote represent. And those are the folks who really value making sure that like 
everybody is in the table together because we all live in here and we all know that like our collective liberation won't happen if we're not shifting the systems. So I take that personal when people try to say, well, you know, this is not it. I'm like, well, this is an organized community that's been putting the work in for decades and you've been ignoring them. Now people want power to actually build it for ourselves. Great. And this question kind of, uh, the answers that you all have given uh, speaks to a kind of broader question about uh, why it's important for folks to differentiate themselves from standard Democrats or even from sort of people who would identify as progressives and uh, but not call themselves a socialist or not uh, want an endorsement from a group like uh, DSA. Um, Tiffany, I wonder if you could uh, speak to this. I mean, wh- why is it why does it matter to have this uh, label affixed to you all? What, what does that mean for how you're running and how you plan to govern? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I think it's especially important in a like quote unquote progressive that's my dog uh a quote-unquote progressive city like like new york right like everybody claims to be progressive our entire our elections where when we talk about electoral strategies and getting our our people into the halls of power and forwarding the, the movements and the organizing of our people on the ground our primaries are where it's at and so it is so important that we are differentiating um, our our theory of change, right? Like completely rejecting this notion of a, a, a two party system, um, and really like leaning into and clearly articulating our theory of change, uh, because folks like to you know talk the talk, uh, especially here in the city, but not walk the walk, right? So like being very very clear, these policies, the way that we implement them, the strategies that we use to implement them, the the apparatuses we create to execute. Um, said policies will all have different impacts on the ground, depending on whether it is a socialist, right, or an abolitionist that is writing the legislation, that is implementing the policy, that is executing it, and that is providing the oversight and the accountability over those policies. How they land and how they affect our people's lives on a day-to-day basis is going to be different. And, And I can't stress that enough. I mean, the analogy that I get, like an easy analogy that I would give goes back to my, my uh, DA race from back in 2019. I said, the playbook is out there. Everybody's saying the same shit, um, but you could end cash bail and increase our incarcerated populations, right? Or you could end cash bail, right? And bring our people home. Um, and so like, I think that that's a, a, a really big, important piece of it. Great. Thanks to you and your dog. Uh, Want to ask, uh, Justine, if you could talk about another campaign uh, it's an important one that, that uh, folks are talking about, which is uh, about the campaign for a, a free CUNY. Uh, if you could explain that for folks who are unfamiliar, unfamiliar with CUNY, unfamiliar with CUNY's history and, and, and sort of lay that out for folks. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a CUNY graduate myself. Uh, CUNY is our public college and university system here in New York City. But because of austerity budgets, because of chronic disinvestment in our city starting way back in the 70s, Now we know a CUNY system that is no longer free. And that change happened when the majority of the population of CUNY became more black and brown. So when we think about economic justice, education equity, that's a story that's steeped in racial justice as well. So, you know, when I think about the kinds of students who cannot afford to complete their education, those are people like me. When I started out in community college, I was on food stamps. When I went to CUNY, when I started going to public college, that was the only option I had as someone who was in massive debt from just one year of private university. Why does it cost $127 to purchase a Metro card so you can hop on the bus, hop on the train, and I come from a a transit desert, right? It takes me an hour and a half to get anywhere interesting in New York City, right? And that is a chronic problem of people not being able to access the kinds of free, accessible education that they deserve. I shared spaces with veterans, with mothers, with pregnant parents, with people who were working part-time and full-time jobs at the same time, because CUNY is the most affordable system that's available here in New York City. But, you know, we have to rely on our state legislators, one, to win the new deal for CUNY so we can restore full funding to the system that can continue to serve our black, brown, immigrant, working class folks in New York City. And we need our city council to allocate the full funding for two-year colleges for life-saving programs that make sure that kids don't fall out of the safety net that CUNY provides. So, you know, 
for me as someone who comes from a background of public education, public education born and bred through and through, it's essential for us to not only close the school to prison pipeline, get military recruiters off of our CUNY campuses, but also make sure that we're securing the right to an education for every single person who would not be able to seek higher education otherwise. Great, thank you. Uh, so we've gone on for a little over an hour here uh, and folks I think have heard uh, a pretty robust socialist vision from the candidates who are running to be on New York City City Council, as well as heard about what is possible, the kind of fights that can be waged uh, once you actually win uh, from our Chicago comrades. Uh, so I want to thank everybody who has uh, been on this call and, and, and participated. I mean, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, like if you had told me that this is this is the kind of conversation we would be uh, seriously having, seriously, like talking about half a dozen socialists in Chicago on the city council and maybe half a dozen in New York City city council. I, I would have thought that was insane as somebody uh, who has been a socialist uh, for a decade and a half. I would have thought that's it's not I mean, you know, like I'm a I'm a so, I've been a socialist for a long time, but it's like do it did it because it's the right thing to do not because i thought we had a, a chance of actually getting a half a dozen people on the council of the two two major cities in america uh but that is actually the situation that we are in right now where we have an actual chance to put a, a sizable number of people who are going to fight for the kind of vision that everyone has heard from uh has heard tonight uh, from folks so i want to thank everybody who is running for the new york city city council uh for spending the night with us as well as our comrades in chicago who are uh, sitting city council members who are taking the time uh, for folks whose lives are very busy uh, to share uh with with uh, fellow socialists it uh, really means the world so solidarity the vast majority is produced by sarah hurd you can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue, or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.